So Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read all of these Beatitudes again for you, and then we're going to focus today on verse 10. So, um, start in verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then verse 10 once again, this is where we're going to focus today. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for these people. Father, I thank you for a place that we can come and meet. I thank you that, um, that we, for the most part, don't have to fear at this moment um, personal physical attacks. Our lives are not in danger because we're meeting here. But God, we must understand that that day may come. And so I pray that you would help us, Father. Give us um, a special... Uh, dose of grace this morning to understand this, to absorb this, to be comfortable with this because of who you are. I pray that your spirit would come down and open our eyes to see who you are, open our ears to hear your word, open our hearts to receive this word with gladness. And I pray that we would not be the same when we leave as we were when we came. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, I got a verse that's going to be up on the screen that I want to I want to read before we start. In Colossians chapter one, this is the apostle Paul speaking, and he says, "Him we proclaim." He's talking about Jesus. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Um, as I learn more and more about my job, my duty as an elder here at this church, um, and specifically as the, the main teaching or preaching elder, I see that what the Apostle Paul is saying in this verse should be true of every local elder, pastor, under-shepherd of any local church, anywhere. This is He's kind of describing what he does, and we look back to him and, of course, Jesus to understand our job in the church. And over the past few years, God has granted me a passion for studying His Word, um, for reading the Bible, reading books about the Bible, reading about the authors and the cultures and the times and, and all those things. And, and also, I enjoy, once I learned that, I enjoy teaching it. I love what I do. Um, it's, it's kind of nerve-wracking right now. I'm nervous. It's scary. But I love it. It's, it's so much fun. And that's what I like to do. And I agree with the Apostle Paul when he says, 
For this I toil and struggle with all of his energy that he powerfully works in me. Because I, I do this, like I said, I'm nervous, I'm scared. Um, but God's energy, the power of Jesus, he's working in me to do this. And I, and I love it. And I also agree that he gives me the energy to toil, to struggle with passages of scripture, with people, with situations. Um, and usually those shepherding with people situations are no fun. They're hard, but he gives me that energy and, and I enjoy it. Um, the verse that we're looking at this week is one that I really had to wrestle with. It's, it's, it's hard. It's not, it's not fun to pick apart this type of stuff. It's usually not a joy to do this kind of teaching. Um, like I said, I enjoy teaching the Bible. But if you notice in that verse in Colossians, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. Now, I like teaching. That's fun. The warning everyone part is not always a blast. It's not always fun. Um, but when he says with all wisdom, he's talking about scripture. We have this book and I can teach everyone, but I can also use this to warn everyone, especially in this flock about what it says. And, and like I said, that's usually not the fun part of what I do. I like teaching. I like digging into scripture and context issues. I like unpacking theological issues that are even sometimes controversial and learning the roots of those things. But um, this is a lot of times not the funnest part. But today I, I have been given the honor of warning you. That's my job today. Um, it's not always fun, like I said, but it is an honor. And so by definition, when you warn somebody, you're preparing them ahead of time for um, impending Disaster or doom or, or a bad situation, um, danger. And that's what today is about. I'm going to warn you. I'm going to give you some things. And this is my warning to you guys. Um, I'm going to try to prepare you for impending danger. At best, my job today is to try to prepare you to die. At best, get ready to die. At worst, my job is to prepare you to be hunted down, enslaved, tortured, and then maybe killed. Or maybe even worse than that, to watch that happen to your children or your grandchildren. That's my job today. Um, I want to try to prepare you today to watch your family disown you, to watch your friends turn their backs on you, and to watch maybe even in the future your government sentence you to imprisonment and maybe even death because of what you believe. In the past weeks, we've, we've worked through these Beatitudes for seven weeks and we've spent a great deal of time and detail on these Beatitudes. Over the next two weeks, we're going to unpack the, the direct byproduct of living a life that is defined by these characteristics. If your life is, is characterized by these Beatitudes, for the next two weeks, you will hear what's going to happen because of that. Um, so we've learned... About understanding the truth about ourselves and who we are. Understanding our sin nature. And that when it comes to spiritual matters, we're bankrupt. We don't have anything to offer God. We have offended God. He's angry. And we don't have anything to fix that problem. To satisfy that wrath that's against us coming from the God of the universe. We, don't, we cannot fix it. And so this truth saddens us. It changes our 
character and our outlook on how we look at the world. And because of seeing that, we hunger and thirst to be right with God. We don't want to be in opposition to God. We want that righteousness. And Jesus promises in these Beatitudes that if you hunger for that righteousness, understanding that it only comes through the forgiveness offered by His death and that righteousness imputed to us, His righteousness, if you hunger for that, you will be filled. You'll be satisfied. It's a promise. It's given. And so, as that righteousness comes and takes hold of our hearts, the Holy Spirit of God begins to produce fruit in our lives. And in, in here, in these Beatitudes, it's just those fruit are described as being peacemakers, being pure at heart, being meek, being merciful. So last week we talked about being peacemakers. And I think it's really interesting at best to that, that Jesus, as soon as he says, blessed are the peacemakers, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. And that, I think, goes to support what we learned last week. Namely, that when Jesus says peace, he's not just talking about being uh, the absence of any hostility at all costs. There's no, no opposition. As a matter of fact, as you work through these Beatitudes, and if you follow the, the logical pattern of how Jesus is speaking, he's saying that our peacemaking, as Jesus defines that we seek to make peace, it will inevitably lead to our persecution. We will be meek, we will be pure at heart, we will try to make peace, and we will be persecuted. For those things. That's what he's saying. And, and it also goes to kind of undergird what I've said all along. That these beatitudes are not of this world. These are not. They don't come from natural humanity. We can't just make this up. We can't just generate it and, and try hard and it happens. But rather God's spirit has to come and indwell inside of us. Change our heart and then we produce those things. We work outward our salvation. With fear and trembling. That God is working inside of us. So the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is teaching about. That we're learning about. Stands, we've said it multiple times. It stands in opposition to almost everything our world teaches. Everything our world exalts. Everything our world sees as important and says. This is what you should go for. This is what you should try to obtain. The kingdom of heaven comes in and flips it all upside down. And says you got it backwards. And. We can't, there are not many places in scripture where you see this more clearly than this verse. These, especially these two verses. Happy are those who make peace and then happy are those who will be persecuted. We will seek to make peace and we will be persecuted. Two completely opposite ideas come together and they work in perfect harmony in God's kingdom. Where the world says if you're making peace, there is no division, there is no opposition. Jesus says when you seek to make peace... It will bring about opposition. You will be persecuted. Only Jesus can make these two things come together and it make perfect sense. In, uh, in John's gospel, he records this statement from Jesus in John 16, 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Next sentence, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So there it is again. This is not some... Jesus didn't just say it one time. He, this is kind of the way Jesus works. I've said what I've said so that you will have peace. And then he immediately says, in the world you will have tribulation. 
So that's the, that's the same message that we learned last week. You can have peace, you can seek to make peace, but this peace is not of this world. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will be persecuted. You will have tribulation in this world. So, our society in America for the past few hundred years has kind of gripped hold of a, a, a theology. These are big words. They don't, they don't mean a whole lot right now. But a, a, a theology called dispensational theology. And that even goes into dispensational eschatology. All of that means or leads to the idea that Christians believe that before the world gets too bad, we're going to be snatched out. There's going to be, we're just going to vanish. Our clothes are going to fall down. Cars are going to crash. Airplanes are going to fall out of the sky because all the Christians vanish. And everybody's going to say, where did all the Christians go? And then the tribulation comes. And you guys have probably been raised to believe this. It's not anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't say this. Anywhere in Scripture are we taught that that's what's going to happen. The Bible teaches that Christians will be persecuted. The church will see tribulation. John, in the book of Revelation, the book that talks about all this stuff, the, the scary book, at the very beginning, John's writing, first century, he says, I am your partner in the tribulation. I'm with you. It's already here. We're going through it. Now, our Western culture doesn't, we don't understand this in America. Um, we're, we're usually not persecuted for being Christians in what we think of as persecution. Um... But around the world, Christians are persecuted every single day because they're Christians. It's happening. It's already here. Um, it's been happening since the New Testament was written and the years following. Here's a couple examples. Um, early Christians would be thrown to lines or burned at the stake. That was an easy death if you were a Christian. Nero was a man who reigned, who ruled the Roman Empire between... 54 and 68 AD. Now to get an idea of that time frame, Paul wrote his last letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, around 66 AD. So this is happening during the time of the writing of the New Testament. Um, Nero reigned during that time and during his reign he would wrap Christians in pitch and light them on fire and use those, them to light his gardens as torches. Christians. Um, he would sew them up in dead animal skins and then set his hunting dogs loose on them to rip them to shreds. He would, uh, they would pour molten lead, melted lead on their bodies. They would uh, fasten red hot brass plates to the, the, the most sensitive parts of your body. Their eyeballs would be torn out. Their bodies, they, they would have parts of their bodies hacked off and then roasted in front of their eyes so they could watch their own body parts being roasted. Um, they would have their hands and their feet burn with fire while they poured cold water on the rest of their body to intensify the, the pain and the agony of being burned. Um, all that was done by Nero during the time of a lot of the New Testament's writing, during the time of the Apostle Paul. Um, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy, what's believed is his last letter. He wrote this in 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13. He said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He wrote that to Timothy. Around 66 AD. 30 years later, 
that same Timothy who had remained faithful to the church in Ephesus where Paul had left him was beaten to death by clubs, by a pagan mob because he was trying to rebuke their idolatry. He was beaten to death. That was 97 A.D. In 108 A.D., just a few years later, a man named Ignatius, who was the bishop of Antioch after Peter, the apostle, after Peter was crucified upside down, Ignatius takes over that job. And because he was a Christian, um, they arrested him. And he was being to, he's being transferred to Rome to, be, to stand trial. He knew what was going to happen to him. While he was being transferred, he wrote a letter ahead to the church at Rome. And he said, don't stop them from whatever they're going to do. Don't try to fight. Don't try to defend me. Lest you should deprive me of what I hope and long for most. And here's a, a direct quote from that letter. Now I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things. So that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let the breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Christ. And then even after he was sentenced to be thrown to lions, when he heard the roaring of the lions that would, in just a few minutes, eat him, he said this, I am the wheat of Christ. I'm going to be ground by the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found pure bread. Now we hear these stories and we think, okay, that was, I understand that was then, but this is now. We've, we've progressed since then. Our world's not like that. Actually, at, as we speak, there is an American Christian pastor named Saeed Abidani in prison in Iran right now because he's a Christian. He's been sentenced to eight years in one of the worst prisons in the world because he's a Christian. This past Friday, they had in, in America, they had scheduled a hearing for the U.S. State Department to come and meet and, and talk about these um, issues, Iran's harsh treatment of Christians as well as other religious groups, um, and basically to call for greater government action on behalf of these Religious groups being persecuted around the world. That was Friday. The U.S. State Department didn't even show up. Said we got conflicting schedules. Didn't show up. They just didn't come. All of that while Joe Biden, our vice president, plans a trip to Rome to the inauguration of the new pope. As you can see... All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving people and being deceived. The Catholic Church, the Pope, he is an imposter. He's deceiving billions of people. They've had billions of people from their foundation deceived, tricking people, teaching them lies. And that's what the Bible clearly says is going to happen. And there are many stories just like Saeed's story happening all around the world. It happens all the time. And we just, we just don't know about it. 
The persecution and the tribulation that the Bible talks about has been going on from the very beginning. And it will continue to happen until Jesus comes back. If you read the Bible, the church is persecuted and when it stops is when Jesus shows up. That's it. It gets worse. And so... It's not something that's far off. It's not something that we will be able to avoid. We will be persecuted. We just need to be okay with it. That's that's the only thing we can do. We don't get out of it. We just have to be okay with it. We need to be ready for it. When the persecution comes to the Christian church in Taylorsville, North Carolina, it will separate true Christians from imposters, from those who are deceiving people. The question is, are you ready? Are you willing It's already happening in our country in a smaller scale. Right now, persecution looks a lot like, you know, snub nose, finger pointing, uh, name calling and stuff like that. But it's, it's coming. So will you stand firm or will you prove to be an imposter? Will you fudge on the truth for the sake of your life? Will you compromise just a little on God's word for the lives of your children, for your grandchildren? My goal today is to prepare you to be able to say, no matter what it costs you, children, home, family members, no matter what it costs, be it so, only may I win Christ. The word for persecuted here is, means literally chased down or, or hunted, usually for the purpose of being uh, killed or to be hurt. Now remember... Jesus is not describing something that God is peeking out and looking for people who are persecuted and saying, I'm going to save that one, I'm going to save that one. He doesn't work like that. He's, as we've gone throughout these Beatitudes, He's given us the natural characteristics of the Christian. This is what a Christian will look like, and as a byproduct, this is what a Christian will endure. And so, it's not like these things might happen, it's, it's, it's that they will happen. These are descriptive of true Christians. Christians will be persecuted. Christians will be pursued in order to be hurt or killed. Like, and I know this, this sounds ridiculous to us in America, but around the globe, this is true. And this is happening to true Christians every day. Now, notice I, I keep clarifying true Christians Jesus says that we are happy or blessed because we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That little clarification will separate out a big separate out a big group of people in this world who will either never be persecuted or never have been. They never they don't have to worry about it. Or people who will be persecuted for the wrong reasons. Neither of which those groups can't be proven as followers of Christ by this passage. So there's a little clarification there. That first group. Those who are never, will never be persecuted can usually be quickly identified. These people either don't even claim to be Christians or their version of Christianity is so watered down and false that they, they, it simply doesn't offend anyone. It doesn't step on anybody's toes. It's just, it's easy to swallow. Um, They're usually not true to God's word. These people a lot of times don't even read the Bible enough to know who God is and what His Word says, let alone use it to defend their faith or rebuke sinners. Now remember, the Bible says that the message of the cross is foolishness, it's a stumbling block, it's an offense. If we're being faithful to the message of this book, 
like we've been commissioned to do, and we're taking it to the world and we're preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins to the world, people will be offended. Some people will be offended. Some people will be converted. God has promised He will save people, but some people won't. They will be offended. We will look like fools when we take this message to the world. We, we look like idiots. But the Bible is clear on this issue. And yet so many people want to just subtract the cross of Jesus and, and the need for repentance and forgiveness of sin. They just take that out. And so their Christianity becomes simply a list of things you can do to be a better person or be a better leader or, or whatever. It, it just becomes a moral code. If you've uh, been watching the History Channel for the past two weeks and watching the, uh, the miniseries called The Bible and you've spent very much time at all actually reading the Bible, you've probably noticed that there's something strange, something, something's missing. They don't, they don't cover a lot of the, the most important things. Now, as the series depicts some of the most popular stories in the Old Testament, they've completely left out a few things that seem to be probably some of the most important things in the, the Old Testament, like the law, like the sacrificial system, the way that the Israelites paid for their sin against their God. They've completely left this stuff out. All these things are the things that point us to Jesus about the Old Testament, which is what the Old Testament is about. It's about Jesus. They subtract that stuff and they've created a Christless, crossless, sinless, theatrical demolition of God's Word. That's what it is. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm DVRing it tonight. I've been watching it. I think it's fun to watch. It's entertaining. Um... And it is fun if you do have your Bible to follow along and notice the little things that get wrong. Um, if you're cynical like I am. But a, a, if you watch it, you, you see that they have attempted to make God's Word entertaining for the world. And it's just not. It, it can't be that way. It is offensive. It doesn't work like that. We are, by our nature, hostile to everything God wants to say to us. And, and it just can't be that way. Um, and they've removed the offensiveness of the cross. For this, they're not going to be persecuted. I mean, the, the biggest qualm I've heard so far is that Samson was black. That's the least of our worries when it comes to learning about the Old Testament. But they will be commended. They will be applauded. Um, what people will see is, quote, a, a bunch of purpose-driven leadership parables instead of... Being pointed to the cross of Christ. But that's how Hollywood does. They've done it for generations. That's just how they operate. They don't know Jesus. Um, because the message of the cross is foolishness. If they show all the things that point to Jesus. And they, they actually get to the point of scripture. Everybody's going to watch it and think this is stupid. This is, this, is not, this is not fun. But that just goes to show you. There is a group. That the, they, their, their version of Christianity is a little watered down. Um, there's another group of people that, that, that come into your mind when you read about being persecuted for righteousness sake. Now these people may actually be Christians, some of them, but their mindset generally towards the world, towards scripture, towards evangelism is a little immature at best. And so um, they are, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, they are persecuted. They're not persecuted for righteousness sake. They're persecuted because they get on people's nerves. They're, they're just aggravating. Um, 
you probably know this type of person. You maybe are this type of person. They, they're, they're terrible with delivery and tact. They, they choose the worst opportunities to say the, just the wrong things. They, they aggravate people. They take no consideration uh, for people's hearts or feelings. Now, the, the message of the cross is foolishness. So we can't just say, well, they might be offended. But we've got to understand and not confuse the, the foolishness of the message for the foolishness of the evangelist who just doesn't really know how to, to, uh, to speak truth into people's lives. Uh, if you remember, as Jesus describes us, he uses words like poor in spirit, meek, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking. Not obnoxious, loud, angry, pushy, cold-hearted, insensitive. He's not talking about that. As Christians, if we are really, really passionate about sharing our faith with people we love and care about, there may be times when we're sharing with tears in our face. We're crying, we're weeping because we care. We, we are humble and we, we care about their souls. Not, we're not pushing people against a wall with our truth. We're not... Being inconsiderate and insensitive, we, we love them. We care about them. Um, I've read the Gospels. I've read Acts. I've read all of Paul's letters. I can honestly say I really can't imagine Jesus or any of his apostles standing with a megaphone at ear level in a crowd of people screaming at them about where they're going to go when they die if they don't become Christians. I, I, I really can't imagine it. I mean... It, that's the way we know how Jesus operated and what he taught. And I really just, I don't see it. Now, I do understand in the New Testament, there were times when they would stand up in a crowd and they would preach publicly. That's a little different than a megaphone in somebody's ear. Um, and those were, of course, different times. Um, now, I do agree that those who die without Christ will spend eternity in a literal, physical hell. But when you get thrown in jail for being annoying and for purposefully breaking rules... Don't call that being persecuted for righteousness sake. Don't chalk that one up and say, praise the Lord, he told us this would happen. That's not what he's saying. He has just described for us what righteousness looks like. Merciful, pure, seeks to make peace. He's given us all these things, not annoying and mean. In, um, in 1 Peter chapter 4, um, Peter kind of sees this and, and makes a little distinction here. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ... You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So notice Peter's making a distinction. That's the same thing. They're suffering for the name of Christ, which is what Jesus is referring to in the Beatitudes. And then they're suffering for such horrible offenses as murder, theft, doing evil, and being a meddler. The word meddler there is literally a person in other people's business. Um, the King James Version calls it a busybody in other men's matters. So you've probably seen this person. Maybe once again, maybe you are this person. Um, but they'll simply just annoy people about Jesus and about church and spiritual things, which are all great conversation topics. And we should be talking about these things with people. But their approach is to just delve into other people's business too much. These are the people that want to come to your house, even though you don't know them and they don't know you. They come on a Saturday morning and they want to talk about their, their beliefs while you're trying to fix the sink or mow the yard or spend time with your family. 
And then when you reject them and, and, and turn them away, they, they chalk it up. Well, we were just persecuted. You know, this is what Jesus told us would happen. Praise the Lord. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And they are far from correct in their assessment. So, there are those who will never be persecuted. They have nothing to worry about because um, they, they just aren't Christians. They're not true believers. Their message is watered down or absent. Um, there may be people who claim the name of Jesus, but they have no true fruit of a relationship with Jesus. And, and then there are also those who will be persecuted because they just aggravate people. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. True Christians, those who have the Holy Spirit inside of them, and that's evidenced by producing fruit, mercy, purity of heart, making peace. Those are the ones who will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, that, now comes another question. Jesus says we will be persecuted, but who will be persecuting us? Well, I think it's probably those same two groups of people. Um, first, there is the admittedly lost world. They simply reject the idea of Christ. They, they hate God. They're evil. They're wicked people. They, they don't love good things. They love bad things. Their systems, their processes are in complete opposition to Christ and His kingdom. They want nothing to do with God or His word or His kingdom. There's that group. We can assume that they're, they're probably not crazy about Christians. Um, the second group we can call nominal Christians. This means they're Christians in label or name only, but they don't really adhere to the Bible and its, its teachings. Um, they may like the idea of Jesus as a teacher, as, a, as an example, a good moral person. They love the God who can heal their sickness, get their children through college, but they don't know Scripture well enough to know that God is angry with sin and that Jesus will someday judge the nations. Um, this group can be very similar to the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Uh, they may be outwardly moral. They may be religious people. But their hearts are far from the Lord. They, may, they might lean to the extremes of legalism or liberalism. They either know nothing of the grace of Christ offered in His death on the cross. Or they know nothing of the law and the moral standard that God has given us to live by. The liberals will claim grace over everything. And they'll simply just live however they want to. And say, well, it's grace. Grace is God. Grace, grace, God's grace. I can do whatever I want to. The legalists will not only adhere to a lot of the things in Scripture, but they'll actually invent their own rules and create their own way of living. And will try to force people into begrudging obedience to those new invented rules. Both of these groups will ultimately be the ones who persecute true followers of Jesus. And here's what's scary, is both will do so claiming that they know the truth, that they have the truth, and we're wrong. Then you've got three different sides. One side says, you, you're not doing anything right, you need to adhere to more rules and be, do these things for God to love you. One group says, hey, we're all going to heaven, it doesn't matter what we do. And then the true followers are saying... No, we have scripture. There is law and there is grace. There is a standard and there is the death of Christ to cover our sins. All three groups are saying they're, they're opposing one another. So how, do, how are we supposed to know? I mean, they're reading the Bible and they're telling me I'm wrong. And I'm reading the Bible and I think I'm right. How do we know? 
Read the Bible more. Read it more and more. Always read it. You've got to know it frontwards and backwards. Know what it says. Know what it doesn't say. There are things that people love to give to Scripture. They're not in Scripture. Let go and let God, not in the Bible. Um, God helps those who help themselves, not in the Bible. All these things, know the Bible. So when somebody says something stupid, you can say, that's not in the Bible. That's not God. So know it. Um, But why will these groups persecute the true followers of Jesus? I think both groups will probably react in the same way to the truth of God's word. Even though they come from different sides. Truth will offend them. And so they fight back. They don't don't like it. No one likes to hear that they're wrong. No one likes to to hear that they're sinners. No one likes to be told that they need to repent. The lost world loves itself. Refuses to believe that there's a standard of truth that all people will be judged by. They desire to pursue their own passions, their own pleasures, everything about themselves without any repercussions. I can do whatever I want to. And so when we come with a message that says, hey, God is really upset. He's angry with how you live. And if you don't repent, that wrath will be poured out on your head for eternity. They don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear it. This is hard truth that we've been given. The nominal Christians will react in the same way. When confronted with the truth, they will get offended. They'll not like what they hear. These types of people are are literally dumbfounded by the truth of who God is um, and, and by what Scripture teaches. They don't like that this God is not the same as the God that they've invented in their own minds. And when they begin to see that, they they get offended. They fight back because they... Refuse to obey the true God. They refuse to adhere to scripture. They will fight back against the followers of Christ. Listen to these scriptures. 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. John 15.19 says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 3.20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So you can see, if you're a true follower of Christ, the Bible is clear. You will be hated and in turn persecuted for what you believe, for what you stand for. The truth is that when we live in a way that honors the Lord, it offends people. It's so, when we as Christians read this and we read, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who are merciful, blessed are those who are pure in heart, blessed are those who make peace. We read this and we think, it works. Why would everybody not do this? It works. But when the world sees this, it's offensive. They get angry. They don't like it because what it does when we live that way is it establishes a dividing line of ethics. It offends them. We, we just read in, in John 3.20. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. John 1 says the light has come into the darkness. Jesus is the light and the world is the darkness. So let's transfer this to literal light and dark. If you spent your whole life in the dark... You would have no idea what light is. or how You wouldn't know how bright light is. You would have nothing to compare it to. And you would also have no idea how dark dark is. Because you've got nothing to compare to. This is all you know is darkness. Now, when light finally appears, not only do you see how bright the light is, but then you begin to see 
how dark dark is. There's finally a comparison. This is what happens when we live our lives as light in a dark world. See, those, the lost world, they've never considered how sinful they are. They don't understand. They've always been in darkness. And so when they're finally confronted with a contrasting lifestyle, they're offended. They, don't, they, they, see, they are exposed. They have something to compare themselves to and they don't like that. The light that is in us, the light of Christ, exposes their evil deeds. So, a few examples. If you're going to pursue abstinence... Your life will expose those who worship sex. If you pursue self-control, your life will expose gluttony. If you live simply and happily, you will expose the foolishness of luxury. If you are humble before God and before men, you will expose the evil of pride. If you show integrity in business dealings, you Expose the sin of laziness and negligence. If you speak to people with compassion, you will begin to expose harshness and cold-heartedness. If you are serious, in serious situations, you will begin to make the flippant look goofy and immature instead of clever and cool. If you are spiritually minded, you will expose the worldly mindedness of those around you. You see how this dividing line, as the light comes, they begin to see their evil. And the Bible gives two options. They will either either see your good deeds and be converted, glorifying your Father who is in heaven, or they will be angry, reject you, and persecute you. So that's how living a righteous life inevitably leads to persecution. It, It just shines that light. And it will happen. The only thing we can do is be prepared. We must be so intimately acquainted with God that we are ready at a moment's notice to give up everything we have for the sake of Christ. But there's another question. Why is it this way? Because we know, we agree, we affirm as a church that we serve an almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God who can, if He wishes, free us from any persecution, any and all suffering. He can give us a life of ease if He chooses. He can give us health and wealth and prosperity if He wants to. So why doesn't He do it? That's a good question. Why is it this way? There are many false teachers who actually teach that God is that way. We've just, we're just not good enough to get it. They say that God's desire for you is to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. And if you have enough faith, it will happen. And if you don't have those things, what's well, your fault? You, your faith is not good enough. Just keep trying. You're, you are hindering God's purposes. You're holding God back. You're not being good enough and God can't get on with His plan. You're holding Him back from blessing you. And they simply just omit the idea of suffering and persecution in the Christian life. This is false. This is not true biblical teaching. We've read earlier that Jesus said, we will have tribulation in the world. I've said these things so that you may have, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That means this world, this planet, this life, we will have persecution. As believers, we're looking forward, we're looking toward a heavenly home. With our Savior. The the world is not all we have. Jesus promised us tribulation. There isn't going to be a life full of health and wealth and prosperity. Those things are reserved for heaven. 
If I'm living my best life now, heaven is going to be a letdown. I mean, but people teach this. These teachers are false teachers. They're heretics. They are what the Bible calls antichrists. They don't teach the message of truth. They don't teach the Bible. They have invented their own religion. They tickle people's ears to make them happy. They will never be persecuted. The world loves these men. Oprah loves these men. They're in the world. Jesus has never promised any Christian a winning poker hand. He promised persecution and tribulation and suffering. In the Christian life, there may be ups and downs. There may be things that we're not so sure about. Persecution is not one of them. We don't have to wonder if this is going to happen. It will happen. But why? Why is it this way? We, we understand God can give us all things if He wants to. And He can fix every problem we have in an instant if He wants to. So why doesn't He just do it? Two answers. First of all, it's just His design. He has designed it this way. God has designed the Christian life to be a life of persecution. To accomplish two things. First of all, to try us. To test our faith. In Job 23.10, it says, But he knows the way I take, the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. So the Lord uses these testing times. If you know the story of Job, he went he lost everything he had. And the Lord uses these things to, to test our faith so that we've come, when we've come through persecution, when we've come through tribulation, our faith will be strengthened. And so, with every persecution we face, with every trial that we go through, we come through the other side, and our, our, our faith is made stronger so that we can go right back into the next, probably harder, test. Every time they get harder and harder and harder and harder, and then Jesus comes back. So that's what He's doing, is He's testing our faith and He's shaping us. Another reason that God has designed the Christian life to be a life of persecution and testing is to bring us forth in purity. And this is similar to the last one, but, but produces a little bit different outcome. Um, up on the screen you'll see Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. And listen to this. Consider Him, that's Jesus, consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For at the moment all discipline seems painful but rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So if you notice here, the outcome of the disciplining of the Lord, remember that word, disciplining of the Lord, 
in verse 10, to make us holy. In verse 11, it produces righteousness. God has designed the Christian life to be a life of persecution and suffering because this is how He fulfills His promise that if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, I'll give it to you. You want it? Here it is. You're going to go through persecution and and tribulation, suffering and trials, and that's how you're going to be made righteous. It will produce that righteousness. And, And notice that it keeps saying the discipline of the Lord, the discipline of God. God disciplines us like fathers, like earthly fathers. Directly after Hebrews 11, which talks about all of the heroes heroes of faith in the Old Testament. It says, others have suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All of those things. And it says, the Lord disciplines those He loves. That is the discipline. The the tribulation and the suffering we go through is the discipline of the Lord to train us to make us holy and to produce the fruit of righteousness, which He said in the Beatitudes, if you're hungering for it, I'll give it to you. And we want to just pick a piece of fruit off a tree and God says it's not going to work like that. You're going to have to be persecuted. He said if you hunger, you'll get it. So, in essence, we can say that God loves us so much that He's willing to not only watch us go through persecution, but He's willing to push us into it to fulfill the promise that He made to us of those fiery trials and persecutions so that we would be made righteous. This is how God has designed the Christian life to be. Jesus died on the cross and we follow Jesus and we take up our cross. And someday we will be glorified just like Jesus is. So that's God's design. He just designed it to be that way. The second reason that the Christian life is plagued with persecution and suffering and tribulation is similar to the first, but it's a little more basic and foundational. Um, is simply because He has decreed it to be this way. He's designed it and He's decreed it, which is easier said. It's this way because He said so. He said it was going to be this way. He just does it. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, so that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. So see, Paul justifies his afflictions by saying, we're destined for it. It just is. God made it from the very beginning. He said, this is how Christians are going to be. And we, just like him, are destined for that persecution. God has, he's just simply said it from the foundation of the world. This is how it's going to be. This is how I'm going to make my children. He's decreed it this way. This is how I'm going to shape them. This is how I'm going to purify them. This is how I'm going to make them holy. This is how when they do die and they are with me and it's all said and done, this is how I'm going to get the most glory. He could have given us everything we wanted, but that wouldn't have equaled the most glory. And so he just decreed it to be that way. Here's another verse, Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you, That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. 
So you see, it must be this way because God has decreed it and he has just given it. It's granted to us. The faith that you have to believe in God was a gift. The suffering that you go through because you believe in God is a gift. He granted it to us. The Christian life, like I said, it may have surprises, but persecution should not be one of those surprises. It will happen. So in closing, I want to leave you with one last encouragement. Because we've seen that we will be persecuted. We've seen who it will be that is going to persecute us. And we've seen why they will persecute us. But we've also seen that God is in complete and total control of every bit of it. And He has promised us that those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We get heaven. We get eternity with our Lord and Savior if we persevere through this. And so I hope and I pray that Jesus means more to you than anything on this earth. More than friends, more than family, more than children, more than jobs or toys or pleasure or health or wealth. We must want Jesus. We must hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the Bible says that Jesus is the righteousness of God. We hunger and we thirst for Jesus, to be like Jesus. He is our greatest joy and pleasure and so whatever happens in this world is, is trivial. If Jesus doesn't mean more to you than anything in this world, you won't make it. If He is your treasure, you will persevere. And when you die, you get Him. The Muslims say that if you die for your faith, you get 70 virgins. Christians say if you die for your faith, you get Jesus. You've got to be okay with that. You've got to want that. You've got to hunger for that. So it's my prayer that if that day ever comes when those who would persecute the church of Jesus Christ in Taylorsville would ever walk through that door on a Sunday morning because they saw our sign and they had guns or whatever. They were hostile and they said, all right, if you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus, stand up and be counted be escorted out, you'll be tortured, you'll be killed. It's my prayer that everybody would stand up and we would go out the door in a line together, hungry and excited that we get to die for our king. See, that's, that's the joy. Ignatius said, take everything. I'm getting Jesus. Paul said, to live, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You, there's no greater joy than to be taken out of this life for righteousness sake. And so that's my prayer. That's what I long to do as I, as I teach the scriptures and I, I warn you and I strengthen you and I want you to get it because that's got to be your joy. One more verse now and I will be dismissed. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, 16 through 18. It says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away and our, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So are you hoping in eternal things? Are you looking for eternal things? Are you looking for pleasure here? Let's pray.